Our sermon this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Let's now hear from the word of the Lord. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is the word of the Lord. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. With that line in the last chapter of his famous tale, Animal Farm, George Orwell delivered his summary critique of Karl Marx and the Soviet Russian government. This story is a well-known one. It's read in high schools all over the country every single year, where the story goes that animals rise up and they displace the farmers. And then they, the animals, begin to run the farm for their own benefit. This is why it's called Animal Farm. It's a farm run by animals for animals. But we see towards the end of the story, as it is a well-known one, utopianism fails. And utopianism always fails. It's bound to. In the end, a new ruling class will emerge anytime a ruling class is taken down. And in this case, it was the pigs. By the book's conclusion, the pigs are putting up signs that would normally say all animals are equal, but now the pigs are putting up signs, but some animals are more equal than others. Now, Marx taught that economic abuse was pre-communistic, and if we could just establish a system that would allow for fairness, then no one would ever have any problems because we're all on the equal playing field. We're all the same. After all, we're all just animals. But Orwell said abuse towards authority is actually further in. It's in the very nature of human's heart. Mankind is actually very selfish. So if you remove a certain group of people, you're still left with human beings here, there who will just be selfish on their own. Today, this critique, or what George Orwell in this book critiqued when it came out about 70 years ago, it seems so penetrating, and today it seems so obvious as we've become accustomed to see authority and misuse Two words often seem to be synonyms towards one another. Words running in the same sentence. We're normally accustomed to think of authoritarianism as a synonym to authority. And in our culture, there's an underpinning of suspicion of authority. And often for good reason. The trend in seeing authority as bad is to often retreat and aiming to shovel all authority away or to try to build up, well, red tape or bureaucratically tie the process up so that no real movement is ever made, and if no real movement's ever made, then no one can become an authoritarian. Yet Christianity is a religion that recognizes the need for authority in our lives. Godly authority is for the good of all of God's people. Godly authority in society, we read about in Romans 13, is for the benefit of God's people. Godly authority in the home that we read about at the end of the book of Colossians is good for the church and especially good for the home. And godly authority in the church we read about in the book of Acts or in the book of Ephesians or 
other parts of the scriptures is good because it's from God. Authority in the church is the ground of my sermon's topic this morning. Our, our church has what's called eldership, or rather than having a solo elder or pastor, we have a plurality of pastors. We have a plurality of elders. We're often called an elder-led church. Our polity is elder-led. We're a group of qualified men called elders or pastors serve the church in leadership, shepherding, prayer, and teaching God's word. Now, I've got to put my cards on the table for the next couple of weeks. This is, this is like eating the dessert that I made for myself. You know, we're talking about elders today, and next week we'll be talking about deacons, and then the third week we'll be talking about godly good church discipline. I grew up in a church that always had elders, but it's also something that I've become very biblically convinced of as Scripture's example and model and instruction for New Testament church leadership. I was thinking about this week on different churches that I've been a part of, and all but two churches in my life have had elders in them. Their government was an elder model. And the two that weren't, uh, uniquely, I was serving in a role where I was part of the team that helped rewrite the constitution of that church to where we then had elders. And by the good grace of God, those churches still exist. So it wasn't my writing that threw them over the edge. All that to say, I was born and bred and am still very passionate about what God says about how we're supposed to worship. And not only how we're supposed to worship, but actually how he has designed our church to be led and guided and loved with on the inside. The topic of eldership is a couple of things to people. For some of you, the topic of eldership is just frankly boring, right? This is the one Sunday where you might have invited a friend to church and you're kind of happy that they didn't show up because, oh, instead of giving a normal sermon, they get a sermon about government, right? But not even the exciting kind that we can watch on TV, Maybe for some of you, the topic of eldership is bothersome. It's a sting from the past. It, it has within it the idea of hurt feelings, whether you were a part of something that went bad or you warned of something that went bad or you were just worried that something might happen. It's a bothersome time. And to others, and to me, just to keep putting my cards on the table, the topic of eldership is, is a beautiful thing. I, I've seen the benefit and the fruit of godly men protecting doctrine teaching truth, praying for people, discipling people, setting up a system as God designed for the betterment and the flourishment of the church. But here's where I want to come at it from this angle. We, we have this understanding, this underpinning in our church that God really does. God very much does love his people. God loves his people. If you are in Christ, I think he really, really loves you. The reality is that all of us were dead to our sins, and by God's grace, he made us alive in Christ, and we can have satisfaction and joy and place our hope in the person of Jesus because he died on a cross for our sins, and he was raised from the grave to not only conquer the grave, but as a foretaste of what we will conquer by his grace when he raises us at the last day and we're in the new heavens and new earth. And so coming at eldership from the understanding that God truly loves his people, he places people not saving them into the forest where they don't know anyone and no one knows them, but rather he saves a people unto a people. And he calls certain people to love and to spend their life 
praying for you, Christian, loving you, Christian, teaching you, protecting you, guiding you, aiming to disciple you, thinking about you, Christian. So the idea of eldership is not really a, a, a concept of government. It's, a, it's an outflow of God's already set love for his church. And all this does is raise the real value of what eldership is. I was telling my mom on the phone this morning. Who doesn't call their mom on a Sunday morning? I was calling my mom on the phone this morning and telling her, I'm basically describing my job description, and every word that I say about my job description, I feel totally inadequate for it. As we think about eldership, we look at it and we see it as something so good to where any of us would go, I wouldn't want that job. Or if you're in that job, you're going, I hope no one notices that I'm in this job, at least for another week. I hope you see that from the scriptures that I'll be talking to you from this morning, you see the terminology of eldership as clear in the scriptures. You see the function of biblical elders as obvious and good for your own lives, and even the composition of elders as something that is attainable and understood and rather than problematic, actually benefiting your own heart. So when I use the word elder, what I'm talking about is from a certain terminology, and that's point one if you're using an outline, the terminology for eldership. When I'm using the word elder, we have a couple of Greek words. So the New Testament was written in Greek that we've translated into English. There are a couple of words that talk about eldership. The first one is episkopos. Episkopos, which is a Greek word. It's there written on your outline. Uh, It's a Greek word meaning overseer or bishop. Church leadership is made up of overseers, and this is the case throughout the New Testament. When, whenever the writers were talking to specific churches, they were talking to overseers or talking to the church about certain overseers or bishops, as they were called. If you have a Bible, I want, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where we were just read to from. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The the people who Paul is speaking about here in this portion of Acts is the elders of the church of Ephesus, where he's giving instruction and encouragement and warning and even resolve, but he's talking to them as overseers. Or with your Bible, turn over to the book of 1 Timothy. Turn over several pages to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, this paragraph actually holds the, the qualifications of elders or overseers or pastors in the church that I'll get to in a little bit. But look at what it says there just in verses 1 and 2. It's, it, it starts that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, on and on, it gives qualifications. Or turn over just a little bit to the book of Titus. So two books over to the book of Titus in chapter 1, verse 7. Titus chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent. On and on, it gives the same types and categories of qualifications as First Timothy. But these are qualifications as elders, and he's using the word overseer to bring this out. Or, or go on one more time to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 in verse 2, it says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising 
oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. eagerly. Shepherd the flock that God has given you. This idea of overseers is there. Episcopos, another word for elder. Secondly, there's the word poimien, poimien, a Greek word meaning shepherd or pastor. While this word is used actually significantly less than episkopos to describe church leadership, uh, it's commonly used of Jesus as being called the good shepherd. And under shepherds within the church are supposed to be under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ, but certainly we should shepherd like Jesus shepherded. And it's clearly a role that the church leaders are expected to fill as under-shepherds. So I just read to you from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. We also see this verbal, or this as a verbal form in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where I was just a minute ago. We see this same type of reality played out, but this way in an action. The only other place that we see this word referring to leadership in the church is in Ephesians, verse, or Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11. So if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, some people think that the, the Greek construction of this, the shepherds and teachers, is actually kind of one phrase, shepherd, teacher, pastor, teacher. That's why some churches you might go to or you might understand, they actually have the title for what we would have as the lead pastor, they would call that person the pastor hyphen teacher. That's where they get that from. Shepherds or pastors in the New Testament shepherded by watching over and nurturing the church. The, the symbol there is if you are shepherding sheep, if you are guiding and protecting and feeding and coming alongside sheep, that's what pastors ought to be acting as in the church. Shepherds take care of the sheep. They protect the sheep from wolves. They feed sheep, they lead sheep, and even correct sheep as they're on their way. Now, I think it was maybe in my uh, third or fourth Sunday here, so we're coming up quickly to a year, but I, I remember using an analogy about bowling. And to this point in my life, no analogy has ever been remembered more in my own teaching than bowling. People come up to me and be like, hey, that actually made sense. And it's been like nine months since I ever said that. So I want to go back to an analogy of bowling again. When you bowl, you don't want to fall into the gutter, right? And by the good and grace, goodness and grace of Jesus, we are kept along the way. And what pastors simply should do, or what shepherds simply should do, is to keep us, as we're going towards heaven, toward the middle of that lane. So we, when we think of elders feeding, or correcting, or guiding, it's not something imposing. It's that as we're going along, they would be nudging us in the right direction. So when something comes up and someone, I might be corrected on, man, I might have come across angry or hostile in that, that person's not just trying to stop me from progress altogether, but nudging me along the way. So point me in, the Greek word meaning shepherd or pastor, but also lastly in these three categories of words, presbyteros. Presbyteros. This third word is used for church leadership in the New Testament, which is normally translated elder passages are all over the place in referencing elder. This is why elders are called elders often more times than they're called pastors. We see this in Acts 11, verse 30. In Acts 14, verse 23. In Acts 15, verse 2. In Acts 15, verse 4. In Acts 15, verse 6. In Acts 15, verse 22 and 23. Acts 
16, verse 4, Acts 20, verse 17, Acts 21, verse 18, 1 Timothy 5, 17, 1 Timothy 5, 19, Titus 1, 5, James 5, 14, 1 Peter 5, 1, 1 Peter 5, 5, 2 John 1, and 3 John 1. All that to say, it's not just an obscure word that's used. It's not just a category that is recently thought up or something that's been a long way in the place in the church, but it's something that's all over the New Testament scriptures as being translated elder. It's used 28 times in the gospel and Acts, and it was talked about in those cases as members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and 12 times in the book of Revelation as representatives of the redeemed people of God. So whenever John was writing that, the things that he would see, there would be called an elder that was representing the church of Enid M.B., or representing the church of Ephesus, places like that. Now, one thing I want to impress upon you is that these, ter- these terms, episkopos, poimien, presbyteros, are used actually interchangeably in the New Testament and will sometimes describe the same office. So the clearest two passages where we see this are in Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5. I'll, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read them for you. In Acts 20, verse 17, we see that Paul is talking to the elders in Ephesus, but then he says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, poimien, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Or in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, it's very similar. So I exhort you elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. In verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Peter addresses the elders, presbyteros, and then tells them to pastor or shepherd, poimien, the flock, and serve as overseers, episkopos. In sum, a singular term to be used for the leaders of the church doesn't seem to concern the early church at all. But, and moving into second in your outline, but they do seem to care greatly about what they do and who they are as Christians. So in thinking about the biblical category of elders or or wanting to have a church that has biblical elders, we just need to understand that there are terms that kind of shape and mold and fashion our understanding of this. But the most important thing about this is actually the function of these elders. Call them anything you want, you could say. Call them an elder, call them a pastor, call me a bishop, don't. But if you call me the bishop of Enid, that would be fine. Otherwise, you can just call me Asher. But the function of the elders is more important. One British theologian described the role of an elder as a subtle blend of authority and care, and as much toughness as tenderness, and as much courage as comfort. And I think he's right in that. What a sweet example. When we think about the functions of elders, I think there are four things. And to make them more unclear, I alliterated them, but I'll make them more clear as we go on. The first one is elders proclaim, or elders teach, or elders feed the sheep. An elder must be an able teacher, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He must hold, it says in Titus 1 verse 9, to the faithful messages taught so that he'll be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. The, the use of teaching is both to encourage and also to refute falseness. Throughout the New Testament, one of the primary roles that we see given to elders in the church is that of feeding sheep. Jesus, as the good shepherd, was constantly doing what? He was feeding his sheep. And he tells 
everyone in Matthew 28 to teach all that he had taught to them and give them, and he even gave them the Holy Spirit to help them recall all that he had said and done. We, we see also that Jesus was speaking to Peter in John uh, chapter 21 and telling him three times that if he loves Jesus, he will feed Jesus' sheep. So elders feed Jesus' people Jesus' words. An elder must make sure that the people of God uh, or elders must make sure that those who God has entrusted to the group of them are being fed and proclaim the whole counsel of God's word. So a faithful elder must proclaim. A faithful elder must teach the Bible. A faithful elder must feed the sheep. Second, an elder points. An elder points or an elder models or an elder leads. An elder points. Not surprisingly, the New Testament list of elder qualifications focus predominantly on character. This is because elders are to be examples of following Christ. What really is an elder in your life? Someone who you want to be like, not because they're tall or cool or eloquent, because they're following who you want to follow. They're going after who you know you need to go after. Elders must point people to Christ. In 1 Peter 5, verses 2 through 3, you've heard it multiple times now, but I'll keep saying it again. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders point people to Jesus. As an elder's function is to point people to Christ, his life is to be a model, is to be one that is walking towards Christ himself. You would imagine if he has a family, he is feeding that family as you want your family to be fed. He's following Jesus the way that you want to follow Jesus. An elder's most basic job is to say, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. This is why elders are too, as uh, Timothy was instructed, they're to pay close attention to your life and your teaching, your life and your doctrine. Far too often we see people who have great doctrine, right? And they're just jerks. Or we see people who are wonderful people, and they have trash doctrine, right? What, what Paul says to Timothy is protect your life and your doctrine, and that, that's something that all of us need to exude. His walk ought to be close to the Lord, and he should be an example. So an elder proclaims, an elder points, but then thirdly, an elder protects. An elder protects. A third function of the elders is to protect the flock from false teachers and wolves. In Acts 20, verse 28, it says, pay careful attention. Another way to translate that would be to be on guard. Why? Well, it says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Friends, the scriptures are clear that Satan prowls around it says in the scriptures, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour God's flock. False teaching has been Satan's playbook ever since day one. In the garden, he subtly twisted God's word and got Adam and Eve to question who and what God was doing, what God actually said. The book of Hebrews instructs Christians to obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. The reverse of that is elders are those who will give an account by how they watch over the souls of the flock. And so it says it is beneficial for those in the flock to obey your leaders and submit to them. Not because 
we're smarter or we're more clever or we even have a better way, but just because we're watching over souls. And this is, well, all of these, after all of these, I want to go, man, pray, 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 pray for your elders. It's not that the job is hard. It's that Satan is really wicked and we are very sinful and we are very selfish. And oftentimes we may not think about others because we're thinking about ourselves. Oftentimes we may not be pointing others to Christ because we're often not pointing ourselves to Christ as much as we should. Or maybe we should be pouring into ourselves as much as we should be teaching or feeding the rest of you. But then lastly, pray. Elders are people who pray. They proclaim, they point, they protect, but finally they pray. There was pressure at the beginning of the church. And the pressure, amazingly, was because of an administrative nightmare. So think about in any situation you've been in. No one loves, like, administration, right? And there were so many people coming to Christ that there was this administrative nightmare that was taking place in the early church. Charles Spurgeon said that the neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. And so as this unfolding tension was growing in the church where leaders saw that some people were being overlooked or some people were being boxed out altogether, they called up a company of people who we call deacons, and they appointed deacons to practically serve the body so that the elders could do what? In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. And let's be honest, eldership is powerless in and of ourselves to mature anyone to Christlikeness. A program might work here like it doesn't work somewhere else. A program might not work here like it did work somewhere else. Or sometimes things just happen, or we might try to do things with the company of men and women who God has placed in our care, but all of that is ultimately fruitless without the praying of the saints. The function of an elder is pointing and proclaiming in praying, but the position of the elder is one who's on his knees in prayer, pleading for the continual work of grace among the church members as well as in his own life. The lack of prayer. I heard someone say, I can't remember who said it, the lack of prayer is the epitome of pride. I walk into a room and think I can fix a problem. If I go in there without prayer at the forefront of my mouth, then I'm just doing what man can do, not what God is wanting me to do. So we want men who are praying people, but we also want those men who are called out by the church to pray for the church. Warren Wearsby said that prayer is not something I do. Prayer is something that I am. And may it be so for our elders. Friend, I don't know what you expect out of your elders. Every member has a different job description of what they think a pastor or an elder ought to be. But my hope is that you see that elders as people who should proclaim the good news of Jesus throughout our lives. They should point ourselves and others to the victorious work of Christ. Elders should protect you from false teaching and dangerous theology and wolves. And elders should be men of prayer, consumed by extending their voice to the ear of the Lord. So pray for your elders and call us to pray for you. Third, We see the functions of the elders, we see the terminology of the elders, but we also just see simply the composition of the elders. The composition of the elders. So so this is what we all want, right? What are we supposed to do, right? We know the words, we know what they're supposed to do, but how do we we operate? How does this system unfold itself? The composition of the elders will probably look different from church to church. Uh, Biblical, but often maybe unwise, 
different elder structures are established. Or maybe wise, but maybe not biblical, as how some elder councils or boards are established. Hopefully, they're both biblical and wise. And you can see this across denominations. You can see this across churches. And in fact, I just want to say, like on a side note, every church has leaders. Sometimes they're not qualified to be leaders. Sometimes no one asks them to be leaders. Sometimes no one knows that they're a leader, but they're a leader. You know, anytime you go into an organization, you're trying to find the the focal point of leadership. And in the church, it, it ought to be the elders because of the very functions there. But how are they supposed to be comprised? Well, first I want us to just briefly look at the qualifications. The qualifications of the elders. Frankly, some churches have elders, but they aren't necessarily biblical elders, and that's due to the qualifications or the lack of qualifications. Turn to the book of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll read these verses. Uh, They should be familiar to you, but these are the qualifications or some of the qualifications of an elder. Therefore, it says in verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he he would become puffed up with deceit and fall into a condemnation from the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that they may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." We see also, if you flip over to the book of Titus, chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. So we see this organization taking effect. Appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach, he must He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What I want to point out from these qualifications, other than able to teach, The rest of these qualifications are character qualities. And even more than that, these are character qualities, let's just be honest, that should be true of every single Christian. So so the reality of what must an elder be, well, we should strive all to be like this. We should look at anyone and say, follow that person as they follow Christ. So back to the role of example of the flock found in 1 Peter 5, elders are the men who can be pointed to make a statement like Paul, who makes the statement all over the place saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what elders are. You can see here that churches could have elders, but also have unqualified elders, and that's when they would be disqualified or even removed from their office. The composition of the elders must be biblically grounded in their qualifications. Now, what you don't see in 1 Timothy 3 or in Titus 1 are qualifications that the world would comprise. If you were going to think through how to start a company that would unfold to a Fortune you know, 100 company. You probably wouldn't list some of these. Some of these, you, know, you don't want to be a drunkard at work and you don't want to steal and all that stuff, but there might be other type of qualities that you would have that are just not here, and this is where we trust that the Lord will increase and grow his church according to how he has designed his church. 
God's mandate is more focused on his glory than any list that the world would comprise. And in God's grace, he'll continue to supply men who will be examples to us all as we follow Jesus. So the composition of elders is that they're biblically qualified, but also that they have authority. Biblical elders have authority, or maybe another way to say it is they have a limited authority. Now, the New Testament doesn't spell out how much authority the elders of a church should have, and we see common grace in this from church to church. Some churches have elders that are ruling the entire church, and some churches have elders that are leading the church, and some people or some churches have churches or some churches have elders where they don't do anything and they don't lead at all. The New Testament doesn't spell out precisely how this happens, and a general debate unfolds is, is how much authority do the, do the churches or do the elders in the church have? This is a debate that is not uncommon to where we are, an elder-led church versus an elder-ruled church. We have some passages, though, that help us synthesize an idea of what this might look like. In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, it's clear that elders do have authority. Paul wrote to the church, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So some were set apart and recognized with leadership. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Uh, The writer says to the congregation that they should obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be no advantage of you. So the function and duties of elders communicate that the office does carry a certain amount of authority. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, or Ephesians 4, verse 11, 1 Peter 5, verse 2, shows that shepherds are given the task of leading God's people in holiness. The obvious indication is is that the elders aren't to lead God's people in everything, so I don't need to see your checkbook. I don't need to see how you put together your garage or even what school you should send your kids to. Our elders would want to be a part of all those things as much as we would want any Christian to be involved in our lives, coming alongside a brother or a sister and saying, hey, I'm doing this. Is this wrong? Or, man, this opportunity looks good in Montana. Should I do it? And a friend would come alongside and go, have you asked your wife? No? Well, friend, let, let me encourage you to ask your wife. You know, those kinds of things. We allow people to have authority in our own lives. That doesn't mean they dictate everything everywhere. The elder's authority, again, is limited. It's not derived, and here's why it's limited. It's not derived from the elders. The elder's authority is not derived from the elders. It's not also derived from the church. The elder's authority is derived from God, which strikes us because that seems so mystical to many of our minds. It's not derived from man, but it's derived from God that he's shown us in his good word. An elder shepherds because the word calls upon the elders to shepherd. They teach because the word calls them to teach. They protect because the word calls them to protect, and they pray because in part they need it and we need it, but more importantly, God says elders pray. So there's a limit to elders' authority, both biblically and practically. At, if you're a guest at Enon MB, we're a church that constitutionally we are called an elder-led, congregationally ruled church, where the buck basically stops at the congregation. So our elders, you know, we don't just walk into a room and pronounce ourselves, I am an elder of this church, because someone might say, no, you're not, or I don't know that. I remember when I was six, vividly, I don't remember out of all the things you can remember when you're six, my friend's dad was the pastor of this church. And, you know, kids always make fun of each other or play, you know, being playful. And this 
kid turned to me and he said, my dad can kick you out of this church. And I said back, being a sarcastic little six-year-old, well, yeah, I'm not even a member. So he can't kick me out at all. I'm just here as a guest. And if you're here as a guest, you can do anything you want to. So Enid MB is an elder-led, congregationally ruled church. What that means is the congregation has the final authority on the who and the what of the gospel, plus some extra things that we have deemed fit for, you know, stuff like taking out a loan or, or different ways that we would vote someone into a particular office. But the who of the gospel means the members. We've deemed it necessary that for the sake of the gospel witness, we take into membership those who are baptized believers in Jesus. The who is the who's in. And the what of the gospel means the doctrine. We have deemed it necessary that for the sake of the gospel witness, we agree on certain doctrines of the Christian faith as necessary for the local church membership. So our church has a confession of faith that we all hold to, which is a basic systematic theology or explanation of doctrines that we hold to as a church. And the church is in charge of those two things. So if I really like someone and the church goes, we don't like them at all. They're totally not a Christian. The church would vote no on bringing someone into membership. There's always that awkward millisecond whenever we do vote someone into millisecond. Like, what if half of you say no? Then they're not in membership. Or let's say that Doug and I really wanted to make us Presbyterian. And sorry for all those who grew up Presbyterian or maybe secretly are. But let's just say we wanted to change the, the doctrine of the church to where we would baptize babies instead of Christians who were converted. The elders don't have the power to change the doctrine of the church. That's something that we see in the New Testament where the church actually has the charge to protect the front door, meaning who's in, and also protect the living room. What do we believe? How do we fellowship? So it's important to know this, where the elders do and must lead within the church, but there are confines where our church has deemed fit to where we practically raise up and remove certain elders. We raise up and bring into members, and we also understand and acknowledge publicly different doctrines. So how is the elder authority limited? In my own mind, if you think about it like this, elders are called to lead the church. What I'll talk about next week are deacons and ministry leaders are called to execute the ministry of the church, and all of us as members are called to do the ministry or the work of the church. So elders lead in this endeavor. And then lastly, we see the structure or the composition of the elders through the structure Elders in our church are recognized by our church itself. So no one in another state or another city says, hey, Enid and B, here is your pastor for a certain season of time. Different denominations do that differently, right? But our church calls our pastors and elders. We do this through nominations and evaluations, and we ultimately seek the affirmation of the congregation. We're organized, well, differently depending on the season. Like we've been functioning as elders differently the last four and five months because of the worldwide pandemic that's been taking place. Or sometimes there might be a season of life where the elders have to meet more often. We currently meet every month, but we see each other all the time. And to some, apparently, we text and email too much. But either way, we're, we're talking all the time, not just about the function, the practicality of the church, but most importantly, that membership directory that you and I have access to, that's our second most worn out book that we might have. You know, many of us just keep it in our Bible where we go to the Word and then we pray for God's people. We're organized and function in praying and in protecting and teaching and pointing people to Christ. We're also pluralized. So we're recognized, we're organized, and we're pluralized 
inevitably, when discussing elders and deacons, the question comes up, how many should there be? How many elders should we have? The Bible doesn't give a number or even a ratio of the congregation for the number of elders. The Bible does clearly teach that there is a consistent pattern of a plurality of elders among the first churches. What I'm saying is that we see in the New Testament that there are consistently multiple elders in one church. James 5 says, let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, and let them pray. Acts 14 verse 23 says, they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular, in the different cities. The pattern of the New Testament church is to have a plurality of elders in a singular congregation. Now, in our case, we, have, we currently have four elders. I wish we had like 10 more, just because of the burden, not of you, but of the burden that I get to come alongside with you, right? I started saying a statement that I tried to backtrack a little bit. There are 263 members in this church. And if it's God's will, then we'll have more elders. And if it's God's will, then we'll have less. But in God's grace right now, we currently have four. And if we have five, or if we have 20, that's awesome. One of my friend's church in Louisville, Kentucky, they have about 600 people attend on a Sunday morning, and they have about 20 elders. Another friend's church, they have 2,000 people attending on a Sunday morning, and they have 45. Another friend's church, they have 2,000 people, and they have four. And I just think, man, how do you sleep at night? You do not have things to stop praying for. (laughs) So... Lord willing, we'll grow because people will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, God will raise up elders in our church who are proclaiming, pointing, protecting, and praying for us. So as a conclusion, I don't want you to lose sight of the destination in this. Eldership is not the end all. I think it's healthy for a church to have a plurality of elders. I don't think that's what makes a church, though. I don't think you go to a bad church if you're visiting because you don't have elders. I don't think you go to a good church just because you have elders. Don't lose sight of the destination. Elders should point church members toward maturity in Christ. Jesus gave teaching shepherds to the church to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, growing into a mature man with stature measured by Christ's fullness, it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. May we reflect this glory together. The instrument that's used in describing the shepherd is the shepherd's staff. You can do a lot of things with the shepherd's staff. You can strike a wolf. You can pull a sheep in if they're going too far away. But if anything, what I see a shepherd's staff doing is you can see it unfolding in his hand and pointing to the Savior. As we all go there, may our elders point us to the one who is incredibly faithful, to the one who in his goodwill and good grace has given us people to follow. And by his grace, may we increase in this understanding and grow in Christ-likeness because of this. Let's pray together. Our Father, we call out to you oftentimes in wonder of why you do the things you do, why you, you have established the things you have. We're brought to a state of humbleness, recognizing that none of us, none of us are perfect. None of us could shepherd like you shepherd us. None of us could intercede like your son is interceding us. None of us could point us to Christ like your spirit can point us to. And so we pray for our elders that you would build them up in grace. We pray that as we follow them, that we would keep our eyes on you and that the result of all this would be our worship. We pray this in Jesus' name.